welcome to Doing the Work, Frontline Stories of Social Change, where we bring you stories of real people working to address real issues. I am your host, Shimon Cohen. I'm excited to let you all know about one of our episode's sponsors, Idealist.org, a site for nonprofit and social impact jobs. So if you're looking for a job that makes a difference or looking to hire, check out Idealist.org. They've got thousands of excellent listings, along with tools to help your organization find the right talent. I know a number of Doing the Work followers are at organizations looking to hire, and we also have students and professionals in our audience who are looking for the right place to work. If you're a job seeker, remember that Idealist.org is always free for you to use. And for hiring organizations, use the code idealist.org forward slash the work to claim your credit for one free 30-day job listing. That's idealist.org forward slash the work. In this episode, I talk with Dr. Dedrick Williams, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, where he's been since January 2020. We discuss racism, race, and racialization. Dr. Williams explains how the concept of race comes out of racism, and that many people often approach this the other way around, as if race came first. He breaks down how racism is a combination of ideology and structures, such as laws, policies, and social practices that support the hierarchical dominance of people racialized as white and oppression of people racialized as black, indigenous, and people of color. Dr. Williams emphasizes that the belief in classifying humans into groups according to race is a racist belief that served and continues to serve to justify the oppressive practice of European settler colonialism, taking land from indigenous peoples and enslaving Africans for labor. We discuss how creating whiteness was a means to split oppressed groups by this new category of race and the way this functioned and functions by providing white people with material and psychological benefits at the expense of black people. Dr. Williams goes in-depth with how racism and racialization function in the larger society, particularly the coding that is used in place of overt racism, affecting the health and well-being of people and families, and ways to identify the mechanisms of racial inequities in the U.S. We need to have a clear understanding that racism leads to race in this overall process so that we can adequately address it. I hope this conversation inspires you to action. Before we get into the interview, I want to let you all know about one of our episode sponsors, the University of Houston Graduate College of Social Work. First off, I want to thank them for sponsoring the podcast. UH has a phenomenal social work program that offers face-to-face master's and doctorate degrees, as well as an online and hybrid MSW. They offer one of the country's only political social work programs and an abolitionist-focused learning opportunity. Located in the heart of Houston, the program is guided by their bold vision to achieve racial, social, economic, and political justice local to global. In the classroom and through research, they are committed to challenging systems and reimagining ways to achieve justice and liberation. Go to www.uh.com 
Edu forward slash social work to learn more. And now, the interview. Hey, Dr. Williams, thank you so much for coming on doing the work. I am so excited to have you on here. I've been following you on Twitter. That's how we connected. I'm really grateful. You know, you uh, responded back and, you know, wanted to do this um, interview that's been a bit in the making. And you know, just to start off, man, like you've really blown up on Twitter. I mean, it's wild to see, you know, I think when I started following you, maybe you had a couple thousand followers. And I just looked, I think yesterday, and it's like over 11,000 now. So you know, what you're putting out there is really resonating with people. It's wild. But I appreciate um, the invitations to, to be on the um, podcast. Um, thank you for reaching out. I, I truly, um, and um, I really appreciate it. So yeah, um, part of the Twitter um, kind of start, man, was really during the pandemic, right? Like I couldn't go anywhere. I, you know, I was reading, I was writing. Um, I, I, and to be honest, I was, I think I've been more productive during the pandemic, surprisingly, than I've ever been. And part of that, I think, is um, some scholars of color would say that when you're not in these spaces of microaggressions and uh, being othered, you can really let loose um, in terms of your writing, right? And that's what happened. And so part of the Twitter, it started off with me just dropping tidbits while I write to try to get a filler, to put a filler out there in the Twitterverse. Um, and people would respond to me saying, hey, that's, uh, you're thinking in the right way or uh, it's, it's, that's not really clear. Here's some articles you should read. Here's a book you should read. So I was getting quote unquote free references from scholars across the globe without even at sending an email. Right. And so, and then the second part of me being on Twitter, I, I think I, I started feeling some kind of way in my, just thinking about my own experience as someone who was racialized as black, who went to predominantly white institutions. And I remember the feelings that I had had of being isolated, that no one gets me. There's no one really to understand my line of reasoning and thinking. And so now that I'm a faculty, I put certain tweets out to, 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 because I was worried that, I, well, the question I was asking myself, am I the only person going through this? Am I the only person who have experienced these types of feelings in academia? Come to, as it turns out, I am not. <laughs> and so part of what I tweet about in terms of inequities, specifically racial inequities, resonates with tons of people. And I think that was a byproduct of my kind of Twitter growth of, of sorts. And, and to not minimize my own research, right? Because I think some of the research that I've done here of late has really taken off. And I don't know what's the directionality of it all, right? I don't know if people were following me on Twitter, then seeing my work or seeing my work and then followed me on Twitter, right? And so I don't know. I, I think it's all happening simultaneously. And as a result of that, I my Twitter following has increased, um, as you mentioned, um, like, exponentially. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I really appreciate how you break things down. You can take complex concepts and and about race, racism, racialization, systemic racism, and break it down in a way, you know, in the Twitter limit, um, in a way that's like <laughs> really understandable, you know? And so I um 
you know, I, that's like, a, and then I went to a talk that you did like a, um, you know, an online presentation that was, you know, more academic and, and it was phenomenal, you know? And so I was like, I have, I, I got to get him on here. <laughs> and, I, you know, one, one of the big reasons I wanted to get you on here is the way you are able to talk about these things and that, you know, and that there is, you know, my own field of social work, right, is like a blend of sociology, psychology, public policy. There's like so many different aspects that make up social work. And there is a big push or maybe was, I don't know <laughs> what's going to happen. It depends on who you talk to, to like really, um, there's like some new accreditation standards with anti-racism, you know, that are coming out and, and folks are good. People got to really make some changes with how things are being done. And, but those aren't, those cannot happen if people don't fully understand like what we're talking about with race, racism, racialization, right? Because it often is discussed like in a way that's just straight up wrong. Let's just say like incorrect. (laughs) So I wanted to kind of start out with that, just like talking about race, racism, racialization and if you can break down what these <laughs> terms mean and like some you know ways and how they function yeah i i appreciate that yeah so so there's been um a few um scholars and um laypersons if you will who have said the same thing so i'm i really appreciate um the love and and the recognition that people are showing via twitter on kind of taking complex issues and using the Twitter Twitter limit word limit to really um, paint a clear picture on these types of processes and mechanisms. So, so just to be um, a little bit a little bit of background about me in order to make sense of my answer. So I was trained as a family sociologist um, in quant methods, right? So trained at the University of Nebraska PhD program in sociology, and I'm, I'm I. Most of my work is about stress and health, kind of conventional work. And I did a postdoc that really, um, in minority health disparities. And I was, you know, being a postdoc, sometimes you can, you're free to do your own work as well. So I really took a deep dive in critical race, um, scholar, and uh, scholarship to see, cause I was interested in it, but I wasn't in a program that lend itself to that type of training. So you take the training that you get and then you learn skills. You learn how to, you know, be a critical reader, critical thinker, and then you can read whatever you want to read. Right. And so that's what I did. And I was really, um, I was really frustrated about how people were writing about race and racism and racialization. It was all this abstract ideas. I'm like, no, there has to be a simpler way to talk about it. So what I do, there is a kind of, uh, in order to understand what race is, you have to first understand what racism is. So there is this assumption, kind of conventional wisdom or conventional thinking that race comes first and then racism happens, right? So race is often taken as a taken for granted um, demographic characteristic of the population, like people who are white, black, Asian, um, native, um, Latino or quote unquote Hispanic depends on who's doing a um, survey. Right. And then because of those groups, then people can be quote unquote racist or, or have racist feelings about those groups. Right. 
And more I read, I was like, wait a minute, our convention is is not necessarily accurate, right? So if we start from the perspective that racism makes the ideal of race possible, then it shifts the imagination, it shifts the perspective, it shifts the line of reasoning, right? Because racism, as I teach it and write about it, is composed of two things. One, there's an ideological component of racism that is the belief that you can hierarchically order human beings, right? And then the second component of racism are structures, right? The laws, policies, social practices, even discourse and language that gives weight to the ideological dimension. So these things are happening simultaneously and reinforcing one another. So if, if a group of people, let's call them settler colonialists, believe that they are, quote unquote, God's gift to humanity and that they are above, they are, they are on top of the human hierarchy and other particular groups, so-called groups are at the bottom of the human hierarchy. That is how we get the notion that racist, like R-A-C-E-S, exist, right? So the idea that groups can be hierarchically structured and ordered and then creating laws, policies, social practices, and discourse and language around that idea gives weight to the idea that humans can be separated based on some set of features, whether that's phenotypical features, um, hair texture, eye shape, head sizes, right? And so those things become, so racism, given its ingredients, ideology and structures, actually makes our understanding of race possible. So if we start there, then we can have a more fruitful and meaning conversation about ameliorating or getting rid of racism, right? And so I'm going to stop right there because I've said a, I said a ton, but I want to be sure that we understand that the direction isn't race leads to racism, but rather racism leads to the ideal of race. And there's a reason for that. And I can elaborate on that further. Yeah. I mean, that that's just so clear how you explain it. And I think that's something that for me has been like a process as well to like come to that like, okay, race is, race is a social construct. It's not biological, which obviously at one point, like, you know, the they were saying it was biological and that's been disproven. But even still, it was like, oh, people, there were these races, even that construct, and then racism came you know came about and it's like no there wouldn't be these there wouldn't be race race right. is without racism like right. it's like so deeply intertwined it's right. so hard to even separate that's right that's right and but the idea i think even so, so the idea of racism makes race possible is also about materiality and power right so if a settler colonialist settler colonialists are coming to the so-called new world they need land, right? They're not just taking resources and heading back to Europe. They're actually staying, right? And in order to stay, you need to remove people who are on the land. And not only that, you need people to work for free to till that land, right? So when we think about racism makes the idea of race possible, we also have to think about the power that is being able to influence others even against their own will 
and materiality, that is land itself, right? And so if you think, so, so racism needed to exist and thus race need to exist to actually justify oppression, domination, and, and exploitation, right? So if I can say, oh, so let me step back for a second. Remember, like in 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 the in in, in the country in this country, we talk about freedom, liberty, and justice. So the critical question becomes: How can a country that's you know, preaching a metaphorical sermon of freedom, liberty, and justice, while simultaneously committing genocide and chattel slavery? Right. Well, you can justify it by saying these people are not fully human, right? Mm -hmm. So you now the ideologies and structures. That is the belief that humans can be hierarchically organized and laws and policies to justify that. It becomes clearer that it's a motive, right? There, there's a reason that we have these so-called racial groups. It's designed to standardize the inequality, right? So imagine the inequality was already happening, <laughs> right? And so putting race on top of the inequality justifies it, right? So, oh, we... Well, we tried to, you know, reason with these people, right? We tried to put them in schools, but they don't want any of that, right? So it's their fault, right, that they're less than human. Well, people of African descent are inherently inferior, right? Their role, their God, so-called God-given role is to serve, right? Is to be enslaved, right? And so those those processes and mechanisms then, then makes it seem as if race is normal, Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And so when we start there, I think then we can have a more fruit again, a more fruitful conversation on how this started. How is it perpetuated and what we need to do to to at least identify the mechanisms to reduce racial and inequ racial inequities in the U.S. Yeah. You know, I think the part you were just saying of like the oppression was already happening mm -hmm. and. You know, my understanding of that, like, um, I'm very influenced by the Seen White series by Seen on Radio, and they, uh, like, and they, um, talk with, like, Nell Irving Painter, mm -hmm. and, like, this idea that, like, they weren't called white, but, like, white indentured servants and enslaved Africans were oppressed, and then this, these, like, benefits that started to be given to like the white to the Europeans mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um started to separate out right and create whiteness where at first it was really a class like mm -hmm. ruling class mm -hmm. versus mm -hmm. you know the oppressed mm -hmm. um I don't even want to say working class because it was like not even right, right. necessarily a working <laughs> class like, absolutely that's right that's right and and so like these these mechanisms that got built over time with these like these privileges, which of course, you know, we talk about like white privilege, um, which I think sometimes is a difficult concept for white people to understand. Right, right, right. Um, but these were the types of like benefits given over time to start splitting apart right. um this bigger like the numbers. Like it was like a you know, and in and like these bribes, basically, that's right. That's right. For people who became white, that's right. And, you, and that, that's a excellent point, right? It's like because part of European indentured servants were also part of the oppressed group, 
But we see what happens, let's say, for example, during Bacon's Rebellion, right? Where indigenous servants and enslaved Africans work together to um, fight against landowners and what we call, um, quote unquote, masters, right? Um, because they recognize their solidarity was powerful, right? Like, mm -hmm. because now they have a common interest. They're being exploited, oppressed, and they saw their commonalities based on that exploitation. Now, when that happened, it really got landowners thinking like, okay, how can we like make sure this don't happen again, right? And so what ended up happening to your point is that laws, and again, the structures then becomes became hardened, right? Laws and policies actually finding um, indigenous servants, right? If they're caught um, um, fraternizing with enslaved persons, right? And so it it drew a wedge with the, between people who had same economic conditions. Now this notion of race becomes increasingly salient to make to divide and conquer, right? And so many critical scholars like myself never dismiss the notion of class inequality. What we tend to argue is how the notion of race and racism more specifically drives, it, it can convolute this notion of economic exploitation, right? And so we see even in contemporary America that people racialized as white who are economically poor often vote against their class-based interests for their racial interests. It, it, Mm -hmm. And that happened a long time ago. And so for that to still be salient to people in their minds, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm talking, um, freely here, but let's not forget that Du Bois talked about this in the great, uh, in the Black Reconstruction book, right? Like he's asking the question, like, why after, um, during the Reconstruction era, after post slavery, why, you know, why don't former enslaved persons and poor, um, you know, European addition servants team up, right? Well, part of that, what he calls the psychological wages of whiteness, right? That I may mm -hmm. be economically poor, but at least I'm not black, right? And so those things became, the notion of race became salient, right? Because it offered a kind of, a material, somewhat of a material, but a huge psychological benefit for persons who are economically poor and of European descent, right? And so those no so our understanding of race at that moment became a way to divide and conquer. And where critical scholars, including myself, is really trying to get us to understand is that process. If we just look at a class-based process only, it assumes that the if if you if people who are racialized as black get these material benefits, they'll have better outcomes. Well, we know empirically that's not the case. Second, it assumes that people racialized as white understand their economic plight. And again, empirical evidence suggests that's not the case. It's much more nuanced than that. And so critical scholars are saying, no, racism helps us to understand class-based inequalities because of how we understand ourselves, so to speak, in a racialized structure. So I'm going to stop there because now I'm, I'm, I'm going out in the deep end. <laughs> no, I mean, when I learned that white communities 
closed public swimming pools because they didn't want to swim with black people. (laughs) And so who lost access to the pool? Well, the white people who could no longer afford, who couldn't afford a private club. Right. 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 So white people were willing to say, well, no one's going to get to swim except those of us who can now pay privately that's right, for it. That's right. And, that, and that's what I think critical scholars is really trying to uh, um, demonstrate, that how powerful this notion of separation based on a set of phenotypical features, how that literally hurts people, not only what we call, quote-unquote, people of color, but also people racialized as white who are economically poor. Racism hurts them too. And if we're not careful, then this particular set of inequities maintains itself. Um, you know, it re- history, quote unquote, history repeats itself over and over again. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, one thing, another thing, I mean, I have a lot of things I want to talk <laughs> with you about. But one thing that always comes up when talking about racism is that it's this interpersonal issue right. And this also overlaps with this idea of like implicit bias or unconscious bias, because by making it into this individual interpersonal issue, it means we all have it. And so it kind of like almost equalizes, you know, racism in a way of like me as a white man, you know. I can have implicit bias towards you as a black man, but you as a black man could have it back towards me. So it takes the power dynamics and all of that right right out of it, you know? That's right. And and that's, and that's my, one of my critiques of that notion. There is this, um, so how I often teach and have conversations about racism, this kind of interpersonal versus structural, like if, if, if we can reduce racism to this kind of interpersonal thing, then I can free myself up and say, well, I know those bad apples, those racist people over there, but I'm not one of them, right? But what happens is that takes the metaphorical stinger out of the bumblebee because it says that, oh, it, 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 it just depends on who you are, right? This, you have to have an intentional, egregious act of sorts against some other quote-unquote racial group to be racist. Well, from a kind of structural sense, intentionality is not a necessary condition for the maintenance of racial inequities. You don't have to be intentional, right? It's sufficient, but not necessary, right? Mm. And so what happens in these particular moments is that we want to kind of blame someone else. No, And the same thing could be said about patriarchy and class-based inequities. It's not some, not necessarily somebody sitting behind a chair saying, oh, let's let's oppress the black people. No, we we don't, because it's so ingrained, we don't need that. All we need is taking for granted assumptions that the world is race neutral, right? And so for people racialized as black, so I try to help students to understand how racial oppression works, right? So let's start, if for the sake of the example, let's start with chattel slavery, right? The idea that people are chattel slavery because they're less than human. Well, if that was the case only, then the end of slavery should have resolved it all. If it was just about that, if you justify a person's chattel enslavement because they are not quote-unquote human and come to find out, uh, that's not necessarily true. 
and let's free these folks for lack of words, right? But that didn't, that didn't happen because it's so ingrained. The idea that humans are a part of a larger hierarchy, that there's somebody at the top and somebody at the bottom, the system, that is the ideologies, laws, and policies do not know how to maintain equality. The system only knows inequality. So after chattel enslavement, Jim Crow laws come, come, right, to off, to adjust for the potential equity, right? So you no longer have enslaved persons, right? But now you need something else to justify the racist ideology. And Bonilla Silva talks about this and other scholars who mention, who talks about the history of this country about correcting itself, right? So if the, if the, if the stability of the U.S. is inequality, anytime challenges from the, the quote unquote inferior group kind of challenges the, so the quote unquote superior group, you, you see this possibility for equality. But the system doesn't like that. Like, it doesn't, it can't function that way, right? At least it perceives itself not to be able to function in that way. Mm -hmm. So the, so, so you have adjustments, right? So, so Jim Crow laws is an adjustment for slavery, right? And then, and even when you talk about the civil rights movement, right? Trying to challenge, um, Jim Crow laws, what we get is a kind of neoliberal expression of race neutrality in response, right? So, oh, you know, civil rights legislation, everybody's equal now, but you, so transitioning from slavery to Jim Crow, from Jim Crow to a post-civil rights era, there has never been legislation to remedy the pre-existing racial inequities. All they said is, you can't do that anymore, right? And when you do that, new mechanisms emerge, new techniques and tactics emerge to maintain the system of inequities. It doesn't, again, a system born out of inequities doesn't know how to create equity, right? And I think that's what's so challenging for many of us who study inequalities, even of, even gender inequities or class inequities. We're all saying the same thing, but placing emphasis in different places, right? And so part of what my work and my teaching is trying to do is to expose that, right? To give people an idea that is not as quote unquote race neutral as we would um, hope to believe. Yeah, you know, and that, that perfectly leads into this, to this other question I had for you or, or just more like, a comment, you know, so it's like we talk about race as a social construct, right. right? And, you know, if you probably surveyed people, like a number of people would say, like, they want to end racism. Right. It's bad, right. you know? Right. And, and so then the, the whole like neoliberal post racial, mm -hmm. like post Obama, right. like, <laughs> um, or even quoting MLK, you know, about using it to justify colorblind, you know, racial colorblindness, right? right? Um, like misquoting him, but is this idea that like, well, if we just get rid of race, we can get rid of racism. Right. Right. That's, that's, yeah, I've, I've heard that a ton. I, I think, I, I, I think those intentions, I think those statements are well-intentioned, right? Like I think folks are just tired of it all. Right. But because there's so much confusion on the front end, as I opened as the, when I said this, the directionality, so to speak, right? Does racism leads to race or race lead to racism? 
And so there is this assumption, even in when people are tired and really want to remedy racial inequities, I think the starting point is the issue, right? If we just, you know, don't, don't have race anymore, there'll be no racism, right? But again, that assumes racism leads to racism, that race leads to racism, sorry. But the, the starting point has to be at the assumptions of humans, right? Like racism, the idea that people that we are, so let me back up for just a second. In contemporary America, we're less likely to hear this kind of explicit racial hierarchy, right? But it's coded in different ways, right? It's coded in neighbor, the type of neighborhoods people live in, right? So when people say that there's a bad neighborhood or a sketchy neighborhood, that's indicative of something much bigger, right? Or, oh, this 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 the good school versus the bad school. The fact that we can put value labels on schools is problematic to me. The fact that we can put value labels, good and bad, on neighborhoods is problematic to me. So no, no, people are less likely to say, at least the people I engage with, that may be people who, who think there's a racial hierarchy. But for, for usually in, in commonplace um, conversations, is there's no hierarchical language, right? Explicit hierarchical language is embedded in other things, right? And so when I hear about good schools versus bad schools, good neighborhoods versus bad neighborhoods, right? Um, those are the type of hierarchical, um, how hierarchy get encoded in the everyday practices of, of um, Americans. And so my, my remedy is that we need to recognize that number one. Right. Like for the mere fact that people racialized as black have been persistently poor over time is how the hierarchy manifests itself. Right. And so people can say, well, you know, that's a civil rights movement. So people can live where they want to live or go to school where they want to go to school. Or, you know, if people if just people pick this up about their bootstraps and did all the right things. And it's much more complex than that. Right. So if we start from the idea that human beings living in the United States shouldn't be faced with challenges of a good school versus bad school. If we start with the premise that human beings living in the United States shouldn't have an option of a good neighborhood versus a bad neighborhood, and all of those are policy decisions. Like this, these things are not coming, they don't exist by happenstance. We know right. what happened in the 1930s with the New Deal. We, there's enough books written, enough articles written about FDR's New Deal, but we had a thing called Jim Crow that restricted, right? Equality across persons. And that has far reaching implications to our present. So no, it's not the starting point isn't about race. The starting point is racism and it's long, it's, it's short term and long term impact on humans, right? So we start from the fact that we're all human beings and no human being should have an option of good versus bad schools, good versus bad neighborhood. Just those two, just for the sake of this podcast and this example, that everyone should have to be in conditions that are equitable. And if we can do that via policy, through our imagination that people are all humans trying to do the best they can and then making an equitable system, then potentially we can, 
we can minimize this thing called race in a way that's functional for the whole entire population. I know I got a little preachy there, but you know, this is this is where my passion lies. <laughs> no, I think I'm I'm right with you and I like how you get right to that question of like and you make that statement like no one should have to make that choice you know and like let's just start there and then work out what the policies need to be and and like at this point too the idea that we're gonna not think about race is just like i mean it's it's not gonna happen right right? Right. like it's so embedded maybe that's like a future that we can't even see yet you know um but a lot needs to happen that's right that's between right. now and that future that's right that's right and that's why the the point of emphasis is recognizing the history right that's what CRT is about right to expose the social construction of race the question it's not just it's not a so for me who 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 really cares about this work the statement, it, it shouldn't be a declarative statement like race is a social construction. That's what we typically do um, as researchers, as laypersons, etc. But I think it should be a question that race is socially constructed for whom? For what purpose was race socially mm-hmm. constructed, right? And then we can follow history, the history of human interaction. The human, the, the, the history of policy development, laws, right? Restricting access for some folks, but giving access to others. And so if we follow that, right? And understand that racism as ideology and structure is a persistent feature of the United States, right? It's not a few bad apples. Is that it's so embedded through the how we think about the world, right? The, the mere fact that people racialized as black are disproportionately poor, have low levels of wealth, has poor health, um, poor um, well-being for both adults and children relative to those who are racialized as white. That should be telling. But usually people who really think that race is a biological idea use those same statistics to, to make an argument. See, it's, it, you know, it's my, my fault that black people are disproportionately poor or disproportionately incarcerated, right? And so if we understand the history of how it got this way, then I, you know, I may be naive in thinking this, but I really believe that people truly understood this particular history, this narrative that we can start having fruitful conversations and, uh, you know, fruitful policymaking, right, in a way to ameliorate or end on racial inequities. Yeah, you know, that part you were just saying that, like, the explanation of the current inequity, you know, and, um, you know, Bonilla Silva's, like, really influenced my thinking on all of this. Likewise. <laughs> yeah, like racism without racist is just like yeah. incredible and I encourage everyone to read it. But this idea that like this biological basis for racism and race then and to explain these inequities then shifts to a cultural right. explanation. Right. right? Like, well, look at how they raise their kids right. or you right. know right. like single moms right. you know like in all you know right. all all the stereotypes right. that we've heard you know yeah. but that's so i so to the to listeners I, when i said people racialize as black it made me think like well that's that's a reason i need to i need to um explain why i say that right so because race is socially constructed I, this and this is Professor Williams kind of really grappling with these issues. Like, 
if I say white people or black people, then it runs the risk of reproducing this kind of essentialist or biological understanding of racial groups, right? And so I'm trying extremely hard to minimize um, the implications for kind of essentialist logic of race. And so I decided to say um, people racialized as white, people racialized as black, people racialized as um, Latino or Hispanic or people racialized as Asian or native because the, the point of emphasis I'm trying to make is the racialization process, right? The meaning given to particular groups to serve a particular purpose. And I care about that. Um, and, and so beyond that, I, 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 I do, um, to your point about um, um, kind of this cultural stuff, like when we think about, and I'm using people racialized as black as an example, because that's my line of research, right? And so I always make these comments, whether in my writing or on Twitter, that people racialized as black have always been blamed for their own oppression, right? Mm -hmm, and so when mm -hmm. we think about chattel slavery, but the thing was black people themselves, it's not people of European descent that Africans are not fully human, right? And so you're putting the point of emphasis back on the oppressed group themselves, right? Or Jim Crow laws, right? We justify Jim Crow laws by using quote unquote cultural explanations and say, well, people racialized as black are more likely to commit crimes or are violent or drug addicts and drug abusers, right? And thus to maintain the purity of whiteness, we can't be with them, right? So again, you're putting the point of emphasis of the oppression onto the people who are actually oppressed. And so those narratives aren't new. It's just the processes are not new. How we approach it morphs and change over time to fit our current understandings of the world. So now no one would say, well, again, people in my circle that I know wouldn't say, oh, um, people who are black are biologically inferior to people who are white. But what we would say is that black people commit more crimes, so they need to be locked up. Or black folks are having um, disproportionate babies out of wedlock, right? They're just leeching off the system. That's why we have poverty. That's why we have uh, welfare and all this stuff, right? And so those narratives aren't, and, 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 and this, again, I want listeners to know that this is kind of Professor Williams' imagination working here. I want to believe that people really believe that. They really believe that it's on the groups themselves. Because in sociology, we have this you know theorem about situations defined as real or real and their consequences. So you have a large group of people in the population who believes, and he could be policymakers too, right? Who believe that inequality, racial inequality that we experience historically and contemporarily, but more so contemporarily, is a byproduct of the groups themselves. People actually believe that with all their heart, right? Because they believe that racial groups are biologically real. And that's why, again, I'm going back to what I said in the beginning, if people assume racial groups exist a priori, right, they just exist, and that racism is a thing of the past, and people would be, oh, yeah, slavery was wrong, Jim Crow laws were wrong, but now, oh, you know, we living in a post-racial society, the civil rights movement ended it all, right? So now people are much more willing 
to say it's not about racism. It's about the groups themselves. And that's a byproduct of understanding the relationship, at least in my own imagination, that we as a country hasn't disentangled the relationship between race and racism. Because if we understand that racism makes race possible, then that argument doesn't fit anymore. Because if racism makes race possible, then what we, the, the inequities we see in the country should be taken as a given, right? It's, it's no surprise that right. people black don't, you know, <clears throat> have lower levels of wealth, um, more likely to be poor, all the, all the adverse outcomes, right? So we should come to the table saying, given the history of this country, this is a byproduct. We shouldn't be surprised. We need to fix this because we are the ones that made it happen as a country. So I'm going to stop there. <laughs> yeah, no, as you're talking, like one like real clear example of this that applies to social work but crosses over because your focus is on like family mm -hmm. well-being, right, is the family policing system, mm -hmm. a.k.a. child welfare, right, right. does these parent education programs yeah, yeah. so the assumption is that parents who have like lost their you know who have had their kids removed mm -hmm. not lost stolen from mm -hmm. them often because of poverty but it gets coded as neglect right, right. um for these laws all they need is training from some social worker or parent educator they just need the curriculum on how to you know be a better parent mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which totally, you know, <laughs> yeah. dismisses everything you're saying that like they're in this situation economically, they don't have the resources. So whatever's going on that might be considered neglect, if the money was given not to the parent education, but to actually helping them economically and mm -hmm. materially, they wouldn't have, they, there would not be that neglect. Right. That right. so-called neglect. Right. Um, Dorothy Roberts, Killing the Black Body was come to mind. Um, this is not new. This has been going on for a long time. And it's a very individualistic based argument, right? It's something unique about these quote unquote, these people, right? Like, mm, like this, this narrative just, um, what Sandy Darity, um, calls it, it refuses to die, right? It, it, it resurrects kind of like every so often, right? So it, we, we talk about it, it goes away for a little bit in the, in the public imagination. Then it comes back all of a sudden, right? And so these narratives, uh, again, I, are a byproduct of people really believing an individual level um, notion of inequality, right? Like inequality that exists in this country. And it's, it's, it, it, so, uh, in many ways, I really believe that it, 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 it helps people's psychological well-being. If, if I believe that inequality that exists is owned to another person, then I don't have to worry about doing anything, right? I don't have to worry about that um, the U.S. Is, can be a depressing place for some, right? Because I don't want to, if I don't want to believe that, then individual level explanations uh, allows me to render invisible power differentials. It allows me to render invisible history, right? It, 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 it really allows me to, to render the lived experience of other folks and the conditions they have experienced historically and contemporarily invisible. And that's a convenient way to live. Like, hey, I, you know, 
tough luck. You got the low, you know, got short end of the stick, right? Right, right. But what, but what critical scholars are saying, like, no, that affects you too, right? That because it may be happening to somebody else right now, but it can happen to you tomorrow if we're not careful, right? If we render every, and, and we saw, um, Something very similar with people doing the um, Great Recession when people were, um, you know, losing their lives, kind of suicide. Right. People because if if I'm not making enough money to feed my family, for example, then it must be something I did wrong. And that's a real uh, it's a difficult thing for some folks to really address. And to your point about families, I'm again trained as a family sociologist, you know, uh, history tells us. That this, you know, so let's take, for example, um, um, the racial differentials in marriage rates and non-marital childbearing, for example, right? Marriage is on the decline for everyone, but it's steeper for um, people racialized as black, women racialized as black. And the non-marital childbearing rates are higher among women racialized as black, right? So if you see those statistics and say, see, if people just stop having kids out of wedlock, then... Well, it's much more complicated than that because they, because part of the policies as you're referring to is this relationship training, for example, assumes that marriage is some type of magic wand to ameliorate inequality. Mm-hmm. And part of the work that I do is to showcase even when people racialize as black or Latino are married, they're still more likely to be poor compared to marry people who are racialized as white. So marriage doesn't make things equal across racial groups. It's an illusion. It's a it's a a language, you know, technique, right? If people want to not be poor, then they should do something to stop that, like get married, for example. And somehow marriage became this, you know, for a long time. You see that even during the, you know, um welfare reform with Clinton, right? Right? Um these time limits on welfare, um, this push towards marriage is the kind of bedrock or the centerpiece of the of, 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 of America. And this is what, you know, and, and when I write about this, you know, I lean on Julian Goh's work, you know, to demonstrate that this is kind of this this notion of Eurocentric um, universalisms. Right. That if if it works well for people racialized as white, then it must be universally right. And what happens is that we ignore the histories of particular racialized groups and the conditions in which they had to live under and currently live with. So, for example, one reading historians and legal scholars on black marriages, for example, you know, people racialized as black couldn't just get married historically. So we see in the Reconstruction era the state, right, use marriage as a way for people racialized as black to gain citizenship rights, right? So to say that marriage is this magic wand to re- to uh, ameliorate inequality is just a historical number one and just plain wrong number two. That's why we had laws in this country where people, for example, black and white couldn't marry each other because the notion of marriage was about maintaining a kind of purity of whiteness, right? To restrict, quote unquote, race mixing. So the ideal of family and marriage in particular has always been used as a way to deflect power, to deflect ingrained inequities, to deflect the humanity of people racialized as black. Yeah, that that's a really great example. I'm glad to tie it back to that because 
you know that part of like if it's right for if it works for white people it should work for everyone too and that um that comes up so often in the interventions that are proposed research taught in social work too is like certain types of therapy um I, i mean i could give a whole you know whole list of that that just like it was only test, you know, it was only evaluated with white people. Yeah. Um, so I, I really appreciate you giving that example. You know, um, there's so many things we could get into. A couple of things I want to make sure we we cover, bef- you know, before we wrap up is that, you know, as we talk about these foundations of racism and race, you know, just being real, making real clear that um, this is rooted in this, in white supremacy and anti-blackness, like those those are integral into in this formation. Right. And I just right. wanted to get your thoughts on that. Right, right. And so <laughs> I'm glad you circled back to that because that's, that's important. I think um, as many scholars have written that the, the notion of white supremacy only get gets reduced to uh, you know, neo-Nazis or the KKK. But thinking about white supremacy as a system, again, where ideologies and laws and policies, social practices, um, language and discourse ends up disproportionately benefiting, right? People who are racialized as white. It's just like patriarchy as a system that disproportionately benefit people who are, um, you know, men. Um, and so it's not, it's, it's much more nuanced than some hate group. It's a system in which we live and Anti-blackness is the kind of underbelly of it all. Um, and what I mean by that is that you can't, there wasn't a time in American history historically where people were equal and then became unequal in the sense of the American, um, American history. The inequality has always been there. The power differentials has always been there. And I think when we understand that, right, like, because when what what I hear people saying in response to white supremacy and anti-blackness is that um, I haven't done anything. It wasn't me, right? Like you know, and I and I get what, why people say that because again, people want to kind of absolve themselves from these atrocities, right? But framing it as a system that only knows how to do what it was designed to do can help us to think deeper about ways to ways to create policies and laws that make life more equitable. And then I again I appreciate the the notion of white supremacy and anti-blackness because it's it's more of a system. Like and I, I'm I'm slowing down here because I really want to get this right and I want to be clear is that right a, a car, for example, is only designed to to, ride, to drive on the road. It's not designed to fly, right? The car system can only uses it use its four wheels, for example, to move from place to place. Whereas a f- plane was designed to fly, right? It can only do what it was designed to do. Imagine if we think take that particular thinking to human beings and why we have inequities. We have to understand that the system as white supremacy, as white supremacy as a system is designed to disproportionately favor people racialized as white and disproportionately 
disfavor, for lack of words, people racialize as black. And when we recognize that, we can actually remedy it. But we have to have enough kind of compassion and empathy with other human beings to say, you know what? This system is designed to do this thing even against my willing to make it like this, right? Like, so if mm-hmm. you want to bring in your personal, like you wasn't there, then cool. But you are here now. <laughs> right, and, right. And the question, exactly. and the question becomes now, what are we doing to ameliorate it? Right. How, what are we doing to end um, racial inequities? And again, a system can be broken, but first we have to admit that there is a system of inequities, and then we have to fight like hell to move towards a more equitable society via laws, policies, social practices, discourse and language, and even the ideologies we have about the world. And so if we can really kind of pull back the metaphorical covers of the system to expose it for what it is, then I think it's much more um, feasible to, to reckon with, right? And so one last thing here before I turn it back over to you is that there is this notion that um, racism, for example, as we talked earlier, um, is about some intentional egregious act that somebody commits against another person. And I think that's counterproductive is why I moved away from calling people racist, right? Like I think name calling can be, can hinder the, the greater good, right? And so I use a system of, of white supremacy as an oppressive system to demonstrate that we all, even Professor Williams, right? And if you, um, of Ibram Kendi's book, uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist, he talks about his own kind of contribution of racism. And I read that. It was like, yeah, growing up, I had, I thought something was unique about black people too, right? The system socializes me to believe in anti-blackness, right? It's only when I'm exposed to new information, when I'm exposed to um, new ways of thinking that I recognize that I too am a contributor to racial inequities, even though I'm racialized as black. And so I have to actively not be racist, that is to be an anti-racist, in a way that my imagination, like I don't take for granted how I contribute to an inherently oppressed system, even as a, a, a man, right? I have to consciously think about the words I use. And while other people would, I hear people say, well, we can't say anything now, right? It's offending people. Well, that's... He, when it was normal, it wasn't good, right? Right, right. <laughs> right? And it's so, like too bad to right. figure it out. Right, like, right. Come on. That's right. And so I'm saying all this to say that, again, I, over the course of my life, I've moved away from making this about an individual personal attribute of a racist person or a sexist person. Those Those people exist, don't get me wrong. But I think talking about Making change, we have to shift our language in a way that really exposes how we all contribute to a system of inequities. And if we contribute to it, we can also um, get rid of it. And I'm going to leave it right there. (laughs) 
No, I really appreciate that. And, you know, one thing I'm interested in your thoughts on this before we wrap up, because I was, I was starting to write this down as we were talking, right? Cause, cause you were, um, you kept coming back and, 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 uh, you should <laughs> to this idea that people racialized as black were considered not fully human. Right. right? And to connect that to our current democracy and threat. Well, first of all, I, I don't believe we've ever fully had a real democracy, like true democracy right, in right. this country. Yeah, yeah. Um, and this is part of why in, and it's part of like this threat that's looming over us today is that, that not fully human, you know, black people not fully being human, right? Led to that belief, mm -hmm. that belief mm -hmm. in black people and codified in the constitution led to the electoral college. Right, right. Right, which creates a situation where we don't have true elect representative democracy, right? Because certain states disproportionately affect Right, like people, someone could win the popular vote <laughs> nationally and still lose the election. Um, and I think the only times that's happened, or like a Republican has won the electoral college vote and lost, you know, to a Democrat in the popular vote. Right, right. And the reason I, I bring this up is I'm just thinking, you know, you you were talking so much about connecting this ideology to policy, mm -hmm. and to me, this seems like a really major one. That's like drastically affecting this country and, and the ability to then create future policies to, to attempt to remedy some of these situations mm -hmm. is, is this deep, the fact that there was, that there was this belief that black people were not fully human. Right. Right. This part of that has never been addressed, like right. has never been rectified in terms of how it affects voting today. Yeah, yeah. That, the, the voting one in the Electoral College is a major example. And I appreciate you bringing it up. Um, but, but, but much of it, though, I think um, that's so there's a book of, and called Edited Volume um, of Anti Blackness that's a really powerful book. Um, and so, what I make the argument and what some other scholars similar make the argument about, uh, and I'm going to move away from the electoral college because you break up a good example, but more broadly, so the fact that we never dealt with it, right? So I, I make these in my writing and when I give um, talks, I talk about that, right? Like the idea that people racialized as black were not fully human was never remedied, right? right. So what we did do is, is basically tell people who were racialized as white, they couldn't do something. I mean, think about it, right? We say you can't own other people, right? Like part of getting rid of chattel slavery. But it, it, but it didn't say, oh, by the way, people racialized as black are also fully human. Mm -hmm. and, and, that, and, and I think that's also a contrib contribution to Jim Crow laws, right? So the, the idea that people racialized as black wasn't fully human didn't go away. It's the, the mechanisms and processes of oppression went away. They say, oh, we're not saying that kind of people of European descent or, or white are human and people racialized as black or non-human. We haven't fully rectified that, right? We didn't, we didn't really, as a country, say, oops, 
we made a really horrible, egregious mistake by putting humans in different groups and stratifying them hierarchically. What mm -hmm. we did was say the mechanisms through which we oppress is unconstitutional. But what happens, because the premise never went away of humanity, the, the humans versus the non-humans, new mechanisms emerge to justify exploiting domination, exclusion, um, the maintenance of inequities. So to your point, that's absolutely right. And we're still in this moment now. The idea that people racialized as black don't have a, a humanity. That's why we can do the type of um, laws that we have, right? That's why we see the killings of unarmed um, people racialized as black, right? Like this is part of the human, this is the manifestation of the human versus the non-human narrative that I think that the United States have, have hasn't really reckoned with. Right. And so those are the things that I care about. Right. That I've tweeted about, like, FYI, people racialized as black are humans, too. Right. And mm -hmm. so part of that and the reason I say that is that inequality just didn't come like fall out the air like metaphorical manna from heaven. Right. <laughs> right. These are laws and policies that led to this and not just at one moment in time, but it persists over time. And to live in a country where people who look like you, kind of racially speaking, who have been disproportionately poor, low levels of wealth, poor health, quote unquote, poor neighborhoods, right? Poor schools, like for a country to say, and, and I critique social science and sociology in particular about this, that we do a lot of racial gap gazing, like, oh, look how poor, look how worse off people racialized as black are to people racialized as white. And we do that in many racial inequality studies. And I'm actually tired of that. And I'm mm -hmm. frustrated by that because what we're, what we're saying is, oh, let's just look at the inequality and maybe some individual level characteristic can help, quote unquote, explain why it exists. And I'm like, no, we know why it exists. Racism is the reason why it exists. The question yeah. becomes, how do we talk about the mechanisms that what are the mechanisms via racism that maintains this gap? And part of my assessment is that the non-human, the perception of non-human of people racialized as black runs so deep that just looking at racial gaps in our statistics is enough. And that's I think that's indicative of the fact that we haven't reckoned with the human versus the non-human. Because to be honest with you, just like, like I'm not just racialized black as an individual, my, my family, mm -hmm. right? my friends, because our social networks tend to be racially homogenous. So I just can't look at a, ra a, a racial statistic and then go home. Like that has implications for the people around me. And for, and again, I think this, the United States inability to, well, lack of addressing the human versus the non-human dichotomy is why we can just, you know, say, oh, look, black folks are disproportionately, are disproportionately incarcerated and then just walk away. No. And I and I and I don't want to uh, undermine organizations that's fighting for um, um, fighting against these particular atrocities. So I'm not I don't want to kind of um, dismiss that. But my larger point is why hasn't it been why has it been so long? For poverty rates to be the way they are, incarceration rates to be the way they are. And I think, 
again, uh, I want to make sure that I say that this is kind of my own imagination working here is that we're not, we haven't fully grappled with as a country, this notion of the human versus the non-human and the manifestations we see in inequities is a result of that. I I agree with you a hundred percent, you know, on all of that. I, I, I agree a hundred percent. And like you said, you know, I, I, and I think it's easier to, to put out, you know, to look at these gaps and to actually do something, right, you know, right. um, doing something be- is, is becomes very comp- hard, that's you right, know, right. because of what you just said, because right. then you go up against these forces that at the core do not believe in full humanity, right. um, for all people, particularly right. for black people. Yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, as we're, as we're wrapping up, I, I just want to make sure I, you know, allow you some additional space to, you know, any message you want to kind of close with and put out there, you know, the, the mic is all yours. I appreciate that. Um, I, you know, I study, I don't study racial inequality, um, particularly, um, um, the inequality of people racialized as black in their families, because I am racialized as black. It's more, it's much more nuanced, um, for me. Like I just so happen to be racialized as black. Part of this academic um, endeavor that I'm on is that I recognize how um, epistemologies are often, that is, our, our knowledge production is often coming out a kind of Eurocentric um, lens or, Euro, or a white racial imagination. And there's, it's, it's time for us to reckon with that. Um, new perspectives, new epistemologies um, new lenses to see the world is all is a good thing, right? Like it's it's not critical scholars are not trying to be overly antagonistic against folk. We're just recognizing that what we have thought to be the truth hasn't been the truth. It's been a particular type of truth predicated on a limited imagination of the world. And if we're going to get it right. We have to be ready and willing, both academics and laypersons um, and policymakers, for that matter, um, to see the world in a, as a much more complicated space in which history shapes our contemporary experiences. And until we really reckon with that, we're going to find ourselves repeating inequitable histories over and over again in order to move forward. In a, must ju- in a more just, equitable society, we must and need to really reckon with our history, be it our epistemologies, our ideologies, our frame of thinking, in order to give hope to the hopeless. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for saying that. Thank you for, um, you know, I've learned so much from following you on Twitter, you know, we'll put information in the show notes. So folks, (laughs) um, can follow you and I'm, you know, I'm, you know, I, and I know many others are excited for your voice and your, you know, growing contribution. Um, just like you said, like these, as CRT would say, counter narratives, you know, that are so critical. Um, to be out there. And I, again, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast and thank you for doing the work. 
Hey, you are uh, welcome. And um, right back at you. Thank you for the invite. I, this is not lost on me. These is, there's several scholars you could have reached out to. And I, I just am flattered and honored um, that you invited me. So I appreciate you too. Thank you for listening to Doing the Work, Frontline Stories of Social Change. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please follow on Twitter and leave positive reviews on iTunes. If you're interested in being a guest or know someone who's doing great work, please get in touch. And thank you for doing real work to make this world a better place.